I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dr. Hans Dieter Suess, a senior research geologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, specializing in the study of dinosaurs and other vertebrates from the Paleozoic and Mesozoic eras. After earning his doctorate from Harvard University, Dr. Suess worked as a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University and at the National Museum of Natural History. Later, he was curator and senior manager at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto and Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh before returning to the Smithsonian. Dr. Suess has collected fossil vertebrates across the United States, as well as in Canada, China, Germany, and Morocco. Today's interview will focus on the history of evolutionary theory and some of its more surprising elements. So Hans, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. So uh, I originally um, was introduced to you, shall I say, just the last week, watching a documentary called When Elephants Walked. It was a PBS two-hour documentary about the evolution of elephants, alligators, birds, and whales. Whales, of course. <laughs> and you were one of many paleontologists speaking on the program, and all of whom were very fascinating and passionate about the work. Uh, you, in particular, I think, really talked about the history of evolution and being fascinated by the theory itself. And that's why I invited you. And I was trying to sort of encapsulate what that fascination would be. So I was wondering if, if you would concur with this. There's a kind of fascination where of where life comes from and what life is, and also what where we come from and what we are. I'm wondering if that would be in, in a nutshell. The other thing is I'm interested in the history of how we think about all these things. So, Yeah, so how we think about these things. So that, that's where it comes in the, the theory of, uh, and the history of the theory of evolution. It's not as simple as it looks, I suppose. One thing that I read in, in, a, in a book that you, you, you recommended, Henry G., a paleontologist, the actual uh, head of the biology division for the Journal of Nature. And he, he talked about the, the paucity of evidence that even though evolutionary theory is very well established in the general uh, framework, that the details are so sparse just because most things don't fossilize that there's an awful lot of speculation to fill in the details. And that makes the whole thing sort of um, a paradox in a way. You have a theory that's extremely well established in, in the sciences and in biology in particular, and yet how it all fits together is so much left to debate. The, the thing is, people don't understand the, what evolution is. Evolution is simply change through time. And what is often being attacked as evolution, quote unquote, is Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. But the fact of evolution was recognized as long ago as ancient Roman thinkers who wrote about things changing, life having a history. and Or even ancient Greece, I think. And even Greece, yeah. But certainly by the time ancient Romans thought about it, they were very explicit about evolutionary change in different kinds of organisms and starting to think on how different kinds of organisms might be related to each other. The fossil record is actually very good now and it's improving every year. And we now have beautiful series of evolutionary transformations. So for instance, the origin of whales, which 
when I was a graduate student was still an utter mystery, has now been resolved due to very interesting fossil finds in India and Pakistan. And at the same time, the study now of genome, whole genomes of organisms allows us to sort of check things too. And you get such surprising things as that among living animals, hippopotami are the closest relatives of whales. That whales, actually the ancestral whales, had ankle joints that looked much like that of any sort of cloven hoof ungulate mammal today. And those kinds of things are, you know, really remarkable. The same thing is the origin of birds from dinosaurs. You know, for many years, people just couldn't, when you look at the living world alone, you can't really imagine how things connect. You know, you see a lizard and you see a bird and they seem like fundamentally different things. But when you have the fossil record and you sort of look at the fossil record, you see how all of these things are interconnected. And of course, the genomic evidence stresses that as well. It's sometimes remarkable that things that look really dramatically different, when you look at the genome level, they only differ at a very, in a very small percentage of their genes. And I assume you're talking about the genomic similarities of living animals, because obviously fossils don't give you a DNA to analyze unless it's uh, you know frozen in permafrost. Yeah, basically, so the limit is now maybe 100,000 years, something like that, if you have exceptionally good circumstances. But by the time you get back to the really important points in evolution, tens or hundreds of millions of years ago, you simply don't have DNA. So this whole Jurassic Park spectacle is scientifically impossible. So are we talking about missing links? Because, you know, the, the documentaries seem to be emphasizing that, that there's, uh, in terms of determining where whales came from. Well, the missing link is another sort of journalistic trope. But the missing link implies, you know, that there's sort of this gap that needs to be filled. But of course, when you fill that gap, you create two more missing links, getting to that filled gap and then from that filled gap to the next thing. So in, in paleontology, we actually no longer use the term missing link. It's just something that journalists like to use to hype particular discoveries. For us, the thing is that's important is that we sort of figure out relationships between organisms. We basically put together the tree of life. And once you have these branches of the tree of life, then you can start looking at evolutionary change. So for instance, what made modern horses so different from the earliest known horses out there, which were forest living uh, animals that ate soft leaves and maybe fruit and so on, whereas modern horses are highly specialized for eating grasses. And that's the kind of thing that you can reconstruct once you have figured out on how all these different species are related to each other. So would you say it's kind of like a, a very elaborate jigsaw puzzle in a way? I mean, we, we don't want to use the word missing link. Can you use word missing piece? <laughs> you know, it just seems like it's so intuitive to... to uh... It is. It is very much so. And that's, that's sort of the exciting thing about it, you know. But imagine it's a jigsaw puzzle where you, you buy a jigsaw puzzle and the bag is half empty <laughs> or even more. So, Right, and you have to uh, almost uh, imagine the, the missing pieces. You know, I, maybe one of the objections to what missing link is it makes it sound like it's a, it's a straight line where, where a, a jigsaw puzzle is three-dimensional or at least two-dimensional. Exactly. 
actually, we, basically, we have to think of it as, as a four-dimensional jigsaw puzzle because it unfolds in time, so the fourth dimension. But there's very much this bias to still think about things in a linear fashion, and that's simply a result of Western philosophy. You know, we always thought that you know things are somehow purposeful. We start from A and we go to B to achieve a particular end. And that's something even scientists have to struggle with because it's so deeply ingrained in our thinking and in our education that it's very difficult to get around that. And rather than in the old days where people thought that basically you had these lineages that gave go from A to B to C, we now realize that many of these great evolutionary transitions in particular are basically a bush rather than a straight line. So for instance, all these discoveries in recent years of new human precursors show that there were all these lineages that went nowhere. They just existed and then they went extinct. And actually trying to sort out a lineage going from the earliest human ancestors to modern humans is actually a very complicated thing. It's almost like a child doing one of those pen and pencil mazes, you know, trying to find where it actually goes from the beginning to end is, is can be very, very difficult. Because you have all these blind alleys that you didn't see far enough in advance. Yeah, imagine a maze where you have like so many alternative routes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was amazed to to learn in preparing for this that, that Darwin himself hardly ever used the word evolution and that he referred instead to descent with modification. Yeah, that's true. That is exactly true. And actually, the word evolution doesn't show up in the origin of species until the fifth edition. I have like earlier editions in my private library and there's the word, the E word is nowhere to be found in those. The, the E word. <laughs> Yeah, that's just one letter uh, shorter than the F word. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's it's well known that uh, Darwin faced a lot of opposition at the time and, and after the fact, and and also that he himself was very reluctant to publish and only published when uh, a, a rival was about to to scoop him, and then he uh, Wallace, and and that he insisted on publishing together. He was seemed like a really decent fellow. Could you talk just a little bit, and I don't want to get too much into a digression about religion, but what are some of the objections uh, to evolution? And also uh, in reading Henry G., it seems like the, the objections are not just from religious people. No, I think the, the, the objections are primarily religious. And you have to understand it in the context in which Darwin was working. At the time, even though there was already Enlightenment philosophy, most people, particularly people uh, you know, of, of the Christian denominations were reading the Bible. The Bible had a very straightforward account on how things unfolded, you know, how God did these things over a couple of days. And it was very difficult because even the earliest Victorian scientists were still trying to reconcile what they learned from science with what was in the Bible. It's only during the 19th century that people gradually realized that there was far more time involved, that things were a lot more complicated. And it's not surprising because basically the biblical narrative in Genesis is one that was conceived of by people who really didn't have scientific data. You know, they just sort of came up with stories that would seem plausible to them. And that's 
that's the way it was. If, I'm sure if they had known more about what we now know in science, that would have unfolded very differently. And you can see it in every religion, there's a slightly different narrative on how things were created. So in the 19th century, when Darwin first published on it, because his book was such a bestseller, it had a huge impact. The idea of evolution was actually not novel. Lamarck had already talked about it. And there's a whole host of 18th and 19th century, early 19th century naturalists who had similar ideas. What Darwin's brilliant point was, was that he looked at evolution, he brought together evidence for it, and then he tried to hypothesize a mechanism on how this would happen. Yes, evolution was something that people realized happened, changed through time. But what Darwin did was basically what he called one long argument was to figure out how this could have possibly unfolded. And that was very controversial. Even though people thought about selection, they didn't think of God basically as a pigeon breeder or something like that. So we're talking about natural selection, I assume, right? So if, if so, could you explain to, uh, to our listeners what that term means? In formulating natural selection, Darwin was very much influenced by what he saw with artificial breeding, how humans had raised specific crops or specific varieties of animals, either for consumption or for, you know, for the pet market. But that, was, that really gave Darwin the idea. And quite independently, Alfred Russell Wallace had realized the same thing, observing organisms interacting in rainforests. So then natural selection then would be something different than deliberate selection for modifying crops or, or breeds of dogs. Exactly. Or pigeons. He was particularly interested in pigeons. <laughs> And it's the whole notion that selection was something odious is actually based on people who worked after Darwin. That was particularly when Spencer first used the sort of unfortunate phrase, nature red in tooth and claw. And then, of course, the misapplication of what was thought to be Darwinian thought by various totalitarian regimes, particularly the Nazis, that has nothing to do with Darwin. They just basically used a caricature of Darwin's ideas to justify their own dreadful political ends. And that would be social Darwinism, I assume. That's social Darwinism, yeah, which in different forms existed everywhere. Here in the United States, we had all these big industrialists saying, oh, you know, this tooth and nail competition is good because that's, you know, what nature wants us to do. <laughs> so, so a Rockefeller or Carnegie... I don't know if Americans realize, but that um, social Darwinism and, and eugenics was not popular just in Germany, but in the United States and probably other places too. Oh yeah, Britain, France, it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very popular idea that uh, the, the overemphasis on racial differences and... Even the Bolsheviks, you know. In... You know another term that, uh, that Herbert Spencer coined was survival of the fittest. I was amazed to hear that that wasn't a Darwinian term either. No. I mean, a Dar it wasn't Darwin's term. No, it wasn't. Darwin, Darwin basically said when you have a population of individuals in a given species, you have various external factors to consider that these individuals respond to, and some of them have features that make them more successful uh, to adapt 
to changing circumstances than others, and that success is measured in terms of how much progeny they leave. But there was never this, what the Spencerian phrase of survival of the fittest was not something that Darwin had in mind. Right. And, and the problem with the phrase is it makes it sound like it's a static time period and that, that the, the, the strongest uh, wins the contest. But in fact, it's, it's really who survives in the long term are the ones that are the most adaptable, not necessarily stronger in, the, in any one particular moment. Yeah. And that's something that Darwin later on would point out. He says it's not, it's not the, the most intelligent, it's not the strongest, but it's the one that can adjust to changing circumstances. And that's something that unfolds over time. You may, today, you may be very successful and have a lot of progeny, but imagine a hundred years from now when circumstances in the world change dramatically, can you adapt to that? And that's, that's the important thing. You know, no matter how strong you are, no matter how intelligent you are, if there's dramatic environmental changes, for example, it's, it's the one who can adapt to that. And that may not be one that has any special qualities whatsoever. In, in geologic time, I think human beings are about to find out if we can adapt to the changes we ourselves are making in the, to the environment. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And usually uh, rapid environmental change is a catalyst for variation, isn't it? Or at least for which variations survive. Exactly. Well, Variation is always there, but it, what it does, it sort of channel, canalizes variation to, you know, new sort of kinds of variation or ranges of variations. Because most, when you look at large populations, you see a tremendous amount of variation. There's, they are identical in sort of the basic body plan and the basic biological attributes. But other than that, there's huge variation. And it's really difficult to predict what kind of variation will be useful under what kind of circumstances? If we were talking about adaptability and which species survive and that uh, rapid environmental change doesn't necessarily cause more variation, but it, it's kind of almost shakes up the, uh, the dice in terms of which variations are going to be the ones that ensure survival to the next generation. And I think that that brings up another point, which is, I think one of the, the objections maybe by religious people is that natural selection has a kind of random feel to it. It's not, uh, to use a philosophical term, teleological, that, that variations don't occur because they need to occur, but variations survive because they ensure survival, it's, but it's not intended in, in advance. No, variation is the result of various factors, that gene, gene combinations, but the fundamental thing is mutations, and mutations are fairly random. There are all kinds of factors that cause mutations. Most mutations are either neutral or sometimes actually deleterious, but every once in a while there are mutations that eventually will help a population or a set of individuals to do better under a certain set of circumstances than their competitors would. And that's a really important thing. So mutation creates random variation, and it's that variation that then is affected by natural selection, that certain variants are more successful than other ones. Ultimately, no organism is always successful. You know, it's just the changing circumstances that favor certain combinations of features. Right, but the mutations themselves occur randomly. In other words, they're not occurring in order to 
And then there were also other mechanisms as well, uh, incorporation of genetic material from viruses or bacteria. I mean, that seems like a much, much more rapid way of, of changing one's genome. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's something that only in recent decades people have realized how much of our DNA is actually viral in, or bacterial in origin, and that was basically co-opted. And nobody really understands why that is so. And ultimately, how is this going to be advantageous? Well, it's advantageous because it may create variation that under a given set of circumstances suddenly is favored by natural selection. So the whole thing seems to uh, rely on a certain kind of serendipity rather than a a plan in, in advance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of people really don't like. I mean, that's sort of a, a philosophy. Even, even some atheists would sort of get really upset about this because we are sort of, as a species, we hope that there's some kind of purposefulness to our existence, you know, that, that we are here for a reason. And when you tell people that you have a lot of viral and bacterial junk in their DNA, <laughs> that's not something that, you know, people are particularly pleased to know. You know, you were saying that that uh, even atheists can be upset. Oh, absolutely, because you know, every everyone certainly at some point in their life sort of asks themselves, "Why am I here? You know, what's what is my purpose? You know, can I leave a legacy? All those questions." And people are really not very happy when you tell them that much of what happens is really beyond our control. <laughs> Well, and also that uh, humans may not be as uh, as much on the pinnacle of of creation, if you will, than we might think. And uh, w- w- I think human beings, as a species, hate to be demoted in that way. I mean, you know, starting with uh, the world not being the center of the universe, for instance. I think a need to see ourselves as being at the the top, not just the top of the food chain, but the top of the creation chain. Uh, there, there was a, a book and, and PBS series that came out, uh, I don't know, 40 years ago called The Ascent of Man, Jacob Bronowski. And, you know, the, and not the descent of man, the ascent of man. The ascent, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he himself was very aware that it wasn't a straight line and that there were awful things that happened along the way. And he had you know, one particular episode about the Holocaust. Uh, but still, the title is certainly very suggestive that the human beings are unbelievably special in our gifts and our ability to understand and fathom. I mean, I don't think any other species is going to go to the moon anytime soon, for instance. And Henry G., who you recommended, um, really, really seems to have a an interest in demoting us. <laughs> you know, he seems to take delight in bringing us back down to earth, so to speak. Well, I think Henry does this in part sort of to pro provoke people into thinking about this issue. I don't think that Henry is sort of, you know, he, I, I know him quite well, and he likes to sort of, you know, goad people a little bit to get them to think, you know, and examine their own prejudices and ideas again in the light of different kinds of evidence. One of the, uh, the facts that Henry G. points out in, in, his, in his book, The Accidental Species, is that there's a fairly recent finding that there were multiple species of hominins, hominins, uh, which are you know human-like or human uh, species, that existed on Earth at the same time. It's not so that really violates a sense that there was this uh, progression. Uh, how can there be a progression if they overlap? You know, it's not exactly a missing link if it's still alive. And we're talking about even in just barely older than 
historical time, like in the last uh, 10, 20,000 years, there were what we might consider more primitive versions of ourselves living at the same time. Well, the whole idea of progression is one that we historically superimpose on events. When the events unfold, nothing or no one is aware that they're part of a progression. That progression is a mental construct that we put on the whole thing after the fact. And that things can move in either direction. They can move in the direction of more complexity or less complexity, for instance, genetically, which is really uh, an astounding idea. I mean, I think the assumption is, oh, it always gets more complex. Um, and one of, the, one of the points that he makes is that, that single-celled organisms genetically are not necessarily less complex. Uh, on, the, on the unicellular level, for instance, there's some amoeba that have three ti 300 times as many genes as humans do. Yeah, that's certainly correct. Uh, and that single-cell organisms give up some of their uh, genetic complexity in order to, well, not in order to, because that makes it sound purposeful, but in the process of joining up with other cells to become multicellular, each cell in some ways can become less complex. Yeah, because these other cells will share some of the functions, so then you have a redundancy in the system that gets gradually reduced. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit about, uh, I guess, what's called vestigial traits? Isn't I think, a, a, a blind assumption that anything that we have or any behavior that we have must have evolved because it's functional. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes uh, there are parts that we have that don't disappear just because they don't cost that much biologically. So, for instance, the appendix... Uh, hasn't had a purpose for probably quite a long time. Or, or another example is male nipples don't do anything, but they don't cost much uh, in terms of resources, so therefore they're not eliminated. Yeah, there's sort of in, in all body plants of organisms, there are certain things that are retained, even though in some cases they may not seem sensible in terms of function. So not everything that's in our bodies actually has an assigned function or set of functions, but sometimes there are things that basically are sort of traces of our historical origins. You mentioned male nipples. That's a good example because all mammals have nipples. It's just that in the females, because once mammals started uh, feeding their offspring on milk, then those particular mammary glands were specialized. But males being sort of from the same mammal body plan still retain nipples. With the appendix, it's a different story. There some people, some medical specialists think that the appendix may still have some kinds of functions in, in the immune response and so on, but there's a lot of debate about this. And so one shouldn't, just because a function is not immediately obvious, one should not assume that something is non-functional. And also the other thing that people naively post-Darwin have always done is sort of thought, one form means one function. And you get these bizarre examples. Like for instance, you think about the horns of a goat. Well, you say, well, they're used for fighting and, and pushing enemies away and so on. But actually, it turns out that the horns also play an important role in thermal regulation. They have a lot of uh, blood vessel supply, and that blood vessel supply helps goats under certain circumstances when it's particularly hard to sort of shed excess heat from around the brain and keep the brain at a, at a temperature at which it can operate successfully. You would never think this about goat horns, 
but that's what it is. So there, there are often functions that are not immediately obvious, but they are actually evolutionarily important. This, I think, is, is a, uh, a good example to show the ways in which evolutionary theory kind of, even though it's so well established, there's also a lot of room for speculation as to why things, why particular things evolved. One example being bipedality. Was, why do humans walk on two legs instead of four? And I think the, the assumption has often been, oh, we walk on two legs so that our hands are free for making tools. And that may be true now, but that's not necessarily why that evolved in the first place. And so there's a lot of speculation. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, it could be because it helps to uh, cool the body when it's horizontal and catching the wind, or it could be to reach higher branches. I mean, there's, there's a, probably dozens of speculative reasons why. Well, there are all kinds of ideas that, for instance, for instance, if we tr when we transitioned as a as a, a group of species from living in forest and going out into the open savanna, it's actually an advantage to be bipedal because you can see much farther ahead. That's one one other possibility. But also, by in many animals that develop bipedalism, it actually turns out to allow for more effective locomotion, faster locomotion greater maneuverability. And that's something that was, for instance, important in the origin of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were evolved full bipedality very early in their evolution. And it's only some of the really gigantic dinosaurs that, for biomechanical reasons, went back on all fours. But you know, the biped bipedalism was a key attribute of dinosaurs and their closest relatives. But they didn't have hands, though, to make tools. So that's why they didn't... Uh stay in power, so to speak? Well, the, the thing is that do you need to have tools if you have all of the features that you need to process your food and so on? So it's, you know, that's that's a question. In fact, a, a colleague of mine once sort of speculated if, if dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct, would any dinosaurs have developed like tool use in the human sense? But a lot of animals use tools without using their hands. You know, birds use cactus spines or rocks to, to break rocks to break eggs cactus spines to pick out little larvae in it in rotten bark and places like that so that's all tool use that's so that you don't really need hands necessarily to use as for tool use but you can actually use the hands or some other structure as tools themselves so so i think if we ever found like some others organisms out there in deep space, they may handle tool use very differently than what we do. Right. I think the assumption is that uh, tools can be made with beaks or with mouths. Uh, and certainly there are quadriplegics who are able to paint using their mouths, uh, putting the paintbrush in their mouth. But that, that, but still, it's a huge advantage to have hands. It's, hands are so much more versatile than, than a mouth or a beak. Yeah, for us, for us. But, you know, if, if you have a different selective regime, then that may not be necessary. Plenty of organisms do amazing things without hands. I mean, you look at social insects, what they can achieve without specialized appendages. Yeah, if you have put enough of them together, you can make a beehive. But then you look at a crow. Crows are incredibly capable at solving complex problems, and they have tool use, but it doesn't involve their limbs. They just use it. They use their beak to find tools, quote unquote, to make uh, to achieve certain outcomes. 
So I, I want to shift to a different question, if you don't mind. One thing I was amazed to read is that there's less genetic variation among the almost 8 billion humans in the world than among the few hundred remaining chip chimpanzees in the world. And I was wondering if you could comment on that, uh, why that would be, and also what the implications are. I mean, I can, th th to me, it's, it seems like we, we can be more confident that we're all much more alike than different in terms of humans. But why did that, why is that the case? And, and what does it mean for you? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't think there's an easy answer for that. But I think the fact that we are genetically so similar sort of puts pay to the old notion that, you know, there's this great variation in humans, that there were somehow humans that are better than others and so on. But, you know, there's absolutely no biological basis to this. And it's the same thing, you know, the concept of race in biology is one that is now completely outdated because when you look at human populations, you have this amazing amount of variation with, within a sort of narrow bandwidth, but that, all of the rest is the same, and those other variations are basically spread across space because, uh, so, you know, there's no a particular race. They're just sort of like in certain areas, you have a certain set of features, maybe sort of a little bit more clustered together than in others, but, you know, there's no biological justification to talk about race. Race is really a social construct. I know a lot of people will hate that notion, but that's the biological view of the matter. One, one racial difference that seems to be real is that Europeans have some Neanderthal genes and uh, Asians seem to have some Denisovian genes, and it's only sub-Saharan Africans that are more or less pure homo sapiens. Is that, is that true? Well, but even Denisovians had Neanderthal genes in them. And even among European populations, the amount of Neanderthal DNA varies greatly. You know, it's anywhere between 1% and 4%. And again, it's just like that virus DNA. There are these bits of historical heritage, and certain bits stay around. And in some cases, they may be beneficial. And in some cases, they may not be beneficial. So I, I have a somewhat esoteric question about the mixing of uh, Neanderthal and, and Denisovian genes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my assumption was that that implied that there was some mating between Homo sapiens and, and, and Homo neanderthalis. But I thought that different species couldn't mate, or, or did they mate before they separated? Well, actually, it's astonishing. Species can mate quite freely with each other. There was this idea once of the biological species concept that has been falsified many times over. In fact, in many species can mate. The question is, is their offspring ultimately fertile? In some cases, that's the case, but in some cases, that's not the case. You know, like the famous example of mules. Mules uh, cannot really successfully reproduce and have progeny. But uh, in many other cases, it just enriches you know, the genetic variation that is already there. And you have viable offspring and offspring that over the generations can maintain its presence. And certainly among early humans, that, that was from the DNA evidence was clearly the case. Denisovian, Denisovians mated with Neanderthals, Neanderthals mated with modern anatomically modern humans, Denisovans mated with anatomically modern humans. So you get this enormous variety of things going on. And ultimately, I mean, 
We don't have yet all of the answers to these questions, but ultimately you create an enormous amount of variation. And that may be variation that in some cases is regional, but in some cases through later migrations and dispersal may have actually spread much more widely. So the concept of species then is a little bit fuzzy. Yes, extremely fuzzy. It used to be defined that if you can't produce after mating, the, the offspring can't then reproduce, then that, that implies that they're different species. But now we can say that even if they can, if they're different enough uh, physiologically, if they have different enough characteristics, then we'll just consider them different species. I mean, what's the criteria? Yeah, I mean, the, in most cases, we recognize species based on external differences. You know, you have a bunch of, of birds, for instance, you see all these external differences and said, okay, that species A, that species B has blue feathers, species A has yellow feathers, species C has a combination and maybe a tuft on its head and so on. So, but what in most cases has never been done is actually tested whether these species can interbreed. And more and more we get genetic evidence that species actually can interbreed in many cases quite extensively. So basically what we're now reduced with is to certain species concepts. And I mean, I personally am an adherent of species as something that you can recognize by features, external or other biological features, and not whether they can reproduce by uh, reproductively isolated or not. As I said, in biology, there are probably dozens, maybe even more species concepts out there. And, and there's wide disagreement of what applies to actual organisms out there. Do bacteria have species? Those kinds of things. So there, there's a great deal of discussion. And I mean, many, there, there are shelves and shelves of uh, books that have been written on the topic, and we are no closer to a resolution than we were, say, 20 years ago. We're here talking about evolution and the evolution of the theory of evolution, and that it's, it's never quite as simple as it seems, although it's, you know, it's, it's an amazingly simple idea that has incredibly complex ramifications, I would say. W one more example of, of that in terms of like, we're not really sure about how things actually unfolded is the importance of fire and, and cooking in, in human, human evolution. From what I've read, there's speculation that maybe the need for less powerful jaws after learning how to cook left more room for a bigger skull case because you didn't need to have as powerful muscles in, in the upper part of the head, you know, to chew, chew all the food. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, possibilities for unintended ramifications and developments and consequences for any particular change. And that's, I think, one thing that's, I think, rankles a lot of people is the idea that things can sort of happen is in this unpredictable uh, unfolding kind of way rather than exactly. uh, a kind of plan in, in advance, whether whether a divine plan or even just a biological plan, uh, that it's things just happen. And it's happened not just randomly. It's, it happens because the, the whole complex uh, interactions in the environment really determine what happens. So it's not random per se. There's a random element, but constraining the randomness is everything else that's happening all around. Well, I would say that one, one, one thing that one learns very soon as a, as a young scientist is that 
as one of my professors once put it, more data lead to more confusion because we, in many cases, we had a few data points and we developed hypotheses to account for these data points. But as we get more information, it turns out that things are far more complex than anyone had ever imagined. Human evolution is a, a wonderful example since it's something that directly relates to us. So you get all these wonderful stories on how cooking, for instance, makes make certain things possible. But then you consider the fact, for instance, Neanderthals had an enormous brain case. In fact, in many cases, had a greater brain volume than what we have as modern humans. But they, they use their jaws in a very different way. All of these ideas, yes, cooking will break down certain foods and make them more digestively accessible. But these anthropologists in particular, since you know we're sort of humans thinking about what humans do, often come up with these ideas which are intuitively appealing, but biologically are really not all that defensible. There's far more randomness on you know effect cause and effect than a lot of people like to admit. When it does seem to be a human need, uh, that's a universal human need to tell stories and particularly to tell stories about origins. And so if we don't have the facts, we'll fill them in with, with uh, speculation or with uh, imagination. Yeah, the one thing that makes us human, in my mind, to my mind at least, is stories. Stories are central to us. And one story is particularly significant for humans. And that's the question, where do we come from? And people want to know that. And, you know, you, everyone has stories to explain that. You know, if you're a religious person, you take certain religious creation myths. If you're a scientist, you, you talk about, you know, the origin of life and evolutionary change after that. And so, so you have this great, but ultimately all, all things come down at some level to storytelling. It's just that science is a different kind of storytelling in that science is there to sort of come up with hypotheses to explain phenomena. And sometimes these hypotheses are simply falsified by other kinds of data that come in, whereas these, of course, creation myths, they're, they're fixed and you know, they don't change. Like, for instance, if we were to find something that shows that certain things happened earlier than other things, the creation myth will not change, whereas the scientific notion of what happened will be affected by that. And that's something that people don't like about science in general, is that science, science is not about sort of the old-fashioned notion of truth. Science wants to explain the world around us. And for that purpose, we develop hypotheses and scientific research tests and tests and tests these hypotheses again. Sometimes hypotheses are falsified and then we discard them. And sometimes we have hypotheses that are tested and tested and tested again and so far hold up fine. And that's that's something that people really don't get about science. And in fact, I'm always thinking about this with our current pandemic. People always say, like, these people don't know what they're talking about. You know, they tell me this one day and the next week they tell me something else. But the thing is, they're collecting data and sometimes ideas that we had about this pandemic get shredded by new sets of data. And that's also then leads to other recommendations and so on. But that's how the scientific process works. If you if you seek truth, then in the old-fashioned sense, and you should stay in religion. Science is about actually accounting for the phenomena that are out there, and explanations for those change from time to time. Once we were at the center of the universe, and then Copernicus 
kicked us out of that. Darwin sort of said, well, we're just a specialized kind of primate. And, you know, early on, we were sort of specially created to populate the Earth. So that's those kinds of things just keep changing in science. It sounds like you're not terribly worried that we're going to run out of things to uh, to understand or to try to understand or to research. I'm going to read a little quote by Henry G. from The Accidental Species. Uh, he said, uh, science is not about truth, but doubt, not knowledge, but ignorance, not certainty, but uncertainty. I mean, it's really paradoxical to think, well, science leads to an increase in doubt, an increase in ignorance, and an increase in, in uncertainty. And, you know, of course, he's being very provocative here. He doesn't mean this literally, I don't think. But if you, if you think that the more you know, the more questions you have, and the more you know, not only is it the more that you know is true, but the more you know what you don't know. Absolutely, yep. <laughs> so in that sense, scientific inquiry opens up more and more kind of fascination with what's not known, more and more questions. And if, you, if you're the kind of person who enjoys wonder and questions, then science is for you, right? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, the famous thing a few years ago when uh, Secretary Rumsfeld said that there were known knowns, there were known unknowns, and then there are unknown unknowns. And that is actually very true for science because we have a certain body of things that we pretty much all are agreed on. We know that there are a whole bunch of things that we don't know, but every once in a while through analysis of data, we suddenly go like, wait, this is something that we hadn't even thought about, and you know, suddenly get into a whole new realm. Like when quantum theory was first developed, when, when people first thought about gravitation being something that might have wave, occur in waveform, those were all things that were literally, in, until then, unknown unknowns. And that's, that's one of the beauties of science, that you, you look at the world around you and you see that, as somebody once put it, that the university is not only incredibly complex, but it's far more complex than we can even imagine. And scientific process, the scientific process has been all about that, that you know, things were far more complicated than we thought. And we're still discovering it and it's still getting more complicated. So e even if what there is to know is finite, let's just say for argument's sake, the, the magnitude is so enormous that it probably would take multiple lifetimes of the universe to figure it all out, is my guess. And that's just a guess. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I always love it when somebody writes a, a book like The End of Science or The End of History, because it's absurd. The human intellectual processes allow us to, you know, we have this phenomenally complicated brain, which we don't even yet fully understand how it works, but there's so much out there that, you know, the curious brain will always have things to explore. Countless generations can still make scientific discoveries, and that's not going to change. Yeah, I want to bring up one more concept. We're, we're getting pretty close to the end, but we think we still have another 10, 15 minutes. There's an idea that no one organism that's alive today is more evolved than any other. And that's sort of a provocative statement because, again, we think of ourselves as being the most evolved. Yeah, because what, what it really is the case is that different organisms, there, there is nothing like a most evolved. We simply, organisms evolve to points where they can adapt to a given set of circumstances. In our case, we are an, an animal that doesn't have any 
clever defense structures. We don't. We are not very large. We don't have teeth and claws to defend ourselves. So we opted for something totally different. We sort of basically over time humans learned to cope with their environment in different ways. We had we have a very large brain, an accident of evolution, and that brain in time allowed us to develop tools and then sort of suddenly handle the world around us using those tools. An insect, for instance, the honeybee, is perfectly well adapted to what it is doing. It's part of a colony. It, it gets supplies for that colony. It, you know, it lives out its life doing various things in the colony, but it is in no way less evolved than a human being is. It's just, again, sort of an anthropocentric view of the world that since we are currently dominating the planet in terms of so physical domination, that we are somehow better or more highly evolved. And that's certainly not the case. I have a related question. Was there a tipping point in human evolution after which intelligence, whatever that means, rapidly grew? Do we have enough information to even speculate about that? So I'm always very hesitant to sort of say this is a tipping point in evolution. Well, we thought we kind of sort of knew this, but things getting more complicated all the time there too. You know, in the past, when you looked at stone tools, for instance, you had these very simple early tools and they're much more complex ones the closer you get to anatomically modern humans. But, you know, now that we have so many different kinds of species, human species out there in the fossil record, it's really difficult to say, is there really a clear tipping point? For instance, I mentioned earlier that Neanderthals had a relatively larger brain than we do, but were they, was there a tipping point there? Or is it at our more reduced brain volume that, you know, that that was a tipping point? And then you, you look at things like the, the hobbit from Indonesia, which lived rel- geologically relatively recently, and you have a brain the size of a chimpanzee, yet this hobbit apparently used tools. So it's very difficult. In the past, we always thought, yeah, that, you know, history has sort of clear tipping points and now, now we are just less certain about this. You know, it seems to be much more gradual rather than that there was a sudden quantum leap from one to another. Yeah, because I, I think this in the popular conception, you know, and this is maybe most famously depicted in, in uh, Stanley Kubrick's movie 2001, you know, there's this encounter with this uh, monolith, which I guess you, you could say is symbolic for a leap of evolution. And suddenly it occurs to the uh, man-ape that, oh, I can use this bone as a, as a weapon, as a tool. And then he, he, he was able to fight off the other, other group, and, and, and then, and then uh, he throws it up into the air, and it turns into a satellite. The uh, photography makes it look like it's just a blink of the eye. Everything else unfolds because of that one moment. Yeah, and that was based on a very popular book by an author named Robert Audrey, who had this notion that we've got the tools and then we immediately started doing all these things, including sort of clobbering each other with the tools. And, you know, that was sort of an early version that was based on basically the misinterpretation of early, the earliest humans, the Australopithecines. There was this idea developed in the 1950s by the original discoverer of Australopithecus that all kinds of smashed and broken bones found with Australopithecus fossils indicated that these animals these, these early human-like animals 
were fighting each other and breaking up things. And you know, he sort of describes how bloodthirsty these are. That was a notion that was very popular in the late 50s up to the late 60s and uh, got an impression in many books. And I think Stanley Kubrick's uh, movie is sort of the cinematography (laughs) celebration of this particular line of thought. And now, basically, this is completely discarded. You know, you, you watch the movie because it is visually a real treat, but there's certainly no intellectual message to be taken away from it. Yeah, another way in which uh, humans have been dethroned is the idea that our ability to use language is unique, that it's not quite as unique as we had thought, uh, that other animals have kinds of language. Uh, and yet it's pretty undeniable that our language is much more complex. Well, but is it? We, we really don't know much about the languages of other kinds of organisms. I mean, when you think that a tiny organism like a honeybee has this already incredible repertoire for communicating things, then, you know, how do you measure that complexity? Yes, human languages are very complex, but some human languages are not, whereas others are incredibly complex and have, you know, words for not just items, but sort of for variations within those items, whereas other languages do not. You know, language is something that is as much subject to adaptation and selection as, as everything else. But you can't say just because a language is more complex, it is somehow better or quote-unquote advanced than another. So what would you say are the advantages, if any, of recognizing that we're not as special as we think we are? I think, the to me, the main thing is that we should take that lesson to heart and then treat the world around us accordingly. Because right now, we're still sort of all thinking about, you know, the earth, the natural world is our dominion. We basically can do what we want with it. And that has had this catastrophic effect that we're now destroying natural environments on land and in the ocean, and, you know, to the extent possible in the atmosphere as well. And, uh, you know, that this should give us pause, that we are part of a larger natural community and we should conduct ourselves accordingly. Since we are, in some ways, the most advanced species in terms of technology, that we should basically, you know, rather than take dominion, we should sort of take emphasize more the stewardship, that we can do things that other organisms cannot do, and we have that moral responsibility. So we may not be necessarily more special in certain ways evolutionarily, but we do seem to be the leader of all other species in terms of our ability to affect the the overall environment and that's something that something that we need to take stock of and and uh but without so-called lording it over all the others that is correct yeah Mm -hmm. exactly yeah (laughs) and you know that's sort of like the famous line you know with with power comes responsibility. And I think that a lot of people don't get that message. You know, we have that power. Right. So Spider-Man, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure it predates Spider-Man, but certainly Probably, being made yeah. popular, popular <laughs> by Spider-Man. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's true in, 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 in every situation. You know, people, when you have particular abilities, then they come... They come with responsibility. You should use those abilities since we are thinking, reflecting organisms.
we have that responsibility. So is there any danger that we'll all become Janes? You know, we're, we're afraid to walk around in shoes lest we step on a, an ant and kill it. No, I don't think so. I think that's, of an, that's a particular tradition, but I don't think we are to that point. But we, we have to understand that we are trying to have infinite growth, growth on a planet with limited resources. And even if we can dream about sometime, set, sometime in the far future settling on, on other bodies in the universe, right now, this is what we have. And I don't think technology is going to progress quickly enough to sort of resolve this issue. And right now, change has so dramatically accelerated in terms of pollution, in terms of the warming of the atmosphere, that you know we really at this point have to sort of stop and take measures to, we, can't, we cannot address all of the species losses that have already happened, but we can sort of reduce the rate of change and so allow us to sort of adapt to these changing circumstances. So uh, if we could do just one more uh, dethroning here, I think humans like to think, or maybe they don't like to think, but they realize that we're the only species capable of changing the whole biosphere. But in fact, we weren't the first to do that. Microbes were. So, so, you know, once again, we're, we're, you know, we're not the top dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, in fact, microbes through pollution, their pollution created the atmosphere in which all other life could develop, the atmosphere with oxygen. So to these organisms themselves, oxygen is useless and in fact, in some cases, toxic, but oxygen became important from all the multicellular organisms that evolved since. It's kind of a funny idea that somebody's pollution is somebody else's gain. Right. Well, that's that's the web of life, isn't it? Um, I think we're just about out of time. So uh, my guest today, uh, Hans Dieter Suess, a senior research geologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. I really enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome, Stuart. Thank you. Thank you very much for a very enjoyable conversation. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.